Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. We started talking about Tachanun last week. Did anyone besides me do the homework Ugh. and actually go look up the story, the last chapter of 2 Samuel? Well, I did your homework for you. Um, because we talked about that story, the opening line of Tachnon, by Yomer David al-Gad, Charlie Maod. David said to the prophet Gad, to the prophet Gad, G-A-D, God, I am extremely distressed. I would rather suffer punishment at the hands of God than at the hands of humans, uh, because God is merciful. So um, I went and reread the story. So again, David uh, orders a census, which... Uh, has bad connotations. The census is completed. So afterwards, I, I definitely got some of the details wrong in my recollection, even though I've read the story like a dozen times before. So after the census, David himself is struck with remorse. He realizes that he has sinned and Hashem instructs God, his prophet, to go to David and tell him the following. And uh, God says, So you can choose one of three punishments, door number one, door number two, or door number three. You can choose um, seven years of famine or three months of being under physical attack warfare by your enemies or three days of pestilence, which is a fancy word for saying epidemic, fatal disease epidemic. Um, That's the choice. And uh, David then says, Tsar li ma'od, nipla na biyad Hashem, ki rabim rachamav, uviyad adam alepola, alepola. I am very, very distressed. Or if you want to take Tsar from Meitzar, narrow place, I'm in a jam, I'm in a narrow jam here, and I'm going to pick door number three. Um, and we said last time, or I wondered aloud what I've always wondered, which is, I understand why the second choice, warfare, is human, but why the first choice, famine, isn't con- is considered human punishment rather than divine punishment. So Larry said he'd read a book about uh, by some economist or something like that that said that uh, condition causes of famine are usually mismanagement rather than um, uh, actual only natu- natural um, circumstances. Um, and then I looked in the Mefarshim because I figured the, the medieval commentators probably hadn't read that book that Larry cited. Um, but they said some similar-ish kind of ideas. So, for example, Rashi says, well, if it was a famine, then what would they do in Israel when there was seven years of famine? They would go to where do you think to buy food? Anyone want to guess? Egypt. They would go to Egypt to buy food. So it would still be human agency involved in the punishment. It would not be total divine agency. One of the other commentators, I don't remember who, said, David reasoned to himself thusly. Um, if I, I really deserve to be punished because uh, I've done this sin. You know, if there's a famine, people are going to say, well, we're starving But of course, the king's household has food because they stockpile food. And if there's warfare, 
then the people will say, well, the king sends his soldiers out to fight and get killed. The king himself stays safely in his palace, right? It's only plague that won't distinguish uh, among anyone. Um, uh, you know, everyone is subject to it. Again, kind of a pretty interesting thought as we've been um, living through these almost two, well, not we here in the West, it's almost two, but in the world, it's two years of the plague. Um, so that's the, that is the punishment which will not discriminate among people. So he chooses that. Then there's the plague starts for three days. Then I got some more details wrong. Uh, there's, there's a malach or a angel representative God who is somehow enacting the plague and the malach uh, gets to Jerusalem, and at that moment, Hashem relents. It's not because David prays or, or Aaron appears with a priest, appears with an incense censer, just like in uh, the book of Exodus that we're going to read in a few weeks, but rather God, God's self relents at that moment on day three, when the Malach is right even with Jerusalem, with the Malach's sword in his hand, um, and is about to strike uh, Jerusalem. Um, Hashem relents. The plague stops there in the place called the threshing floor of Aravna, the Jebusite. Jerusalem is at this point before conquest by David, a Jebusite city. He conquers it and makes it his capital city. Um, apparently there are still Jebusites there, Yevusim. So the plague line stops at the threshing floor, the barn, we'd call it in English, the barn of Aravna, the Jebusite, non-Jew, non-Israelite. Um, God, the prophet, commands David to go purchase that site, acquire that site, and offer up an offering there, build an altar and offer up an offering, thanksgiving to God. King David approaches Jebusite. He says, hey, I would like to buy your barn to offer Thanksgiving offering to God. Um, and Aravna, a little bit like Ephron, the Hittite in Parshat Kitisa, says to King David, no, 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 your majesty, you take it. And you know what? Take my oxen who are also in the barn to offer up as the sacrifice and take their wooden yokes to use as the uh, wood to to build the, the the fire on the altar. And like Abraham Avinu, King David says, no, 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 I want to pay for everything, right? And he pays him uh, for the barn and he um, erects an altar there. And he does, in fact, he pays him for the barn and the oxen and the, and the, uh, the, the, the oxen, the wooden oxen equipment, I guess the yoke to build the fire. And that's where he has, he establishes an altar and we'll read then in the next book in the book of Kings, that that's where his son, King Solomon builds the temple. So a lot of info there in that story. Um, so the, uh, again, if we take, if we accept the theory, uh, we call it that word, that anytime we read something from the Torah that's quoted in the Sidur, it's supposed to evoke for you the, the sense, the feeling, the memory of that whole biblical story. Then Tachanun, regular weekday Tachanun, which opens with Vayomer David el-Gad, 
uh, opens with an evocation of a story saying, we hope that, or, or this could be an interpretation of what it evokes. It's my interpretation. Uh, we, we hope and pray that no bad things befall us at the hands of human beings. We hope that any suffering that comes to us is from the hand of God, because God is the one who is truly merciful, as opposed to human beings who are not always so merciful. So I'm just going to pause for a moment. Larry, then Ilana. Yeah, yeah. Um, I apologize. I got stuck. Uh, okay, apology accepted. Go ahead. Your comment. Just, just what What were the, this question, what were the three choices, very uh, broadly? Seven years of famine, three months of being under attack by your enemies, or three days of plague. Okay. And David says, I'll choose the third one. That's the only one that's truly divine. Larry and then Michael Ozer. Larry. Um, yeah, Avi, can you um, tell me where that, uh, the source of that uh, uh, Rashi commentary? Uh, yeah, it's Rashi on the, uh, the last chapter of two, the second book of Samuel. Um, if you, uh, I think it's on that, the Rashi on that verse. Okay, I'll look for it. And yeah. I, I won't take up any time. I just want, first of all, people should know the name of the Nobel Prize winning economist. is Amartya Amartya Sen. Oh, he's the one um, who wrote the book? Oh, I've heard of him. Even I've heard of him. Okay. Right. So I'm not and, an economist. Um, and I'm not going to explain, but I mean, Rashi's very wise because by saying going to Egypt is something similar to saying, well, we have to trade. We have to have free trade or national trade. And what is it that most governments do, at least in the third world, but even in the developed world, when there's a perceived shortage of something, the first thing you say is, oh, oh, we can't trade anymore. And so they bar trade. And that's one of the reasons why droughts often lead to unnecessary famine. Okay. Thank you for contributing that. I appreciate it. Um, about, about, about Michael Ozer. <clears throat> yeah. Um, Avi, uh, it does say in the, uh, in the footnotes of the Art Scroll Sidur that uh, um, David chose the last because that would be inflicted directly by God. And uh, his choice proved correct. One, when God Merciville halted the plague after the duration of only a half a day. And similarly in God, in Tachanan, we cast ourselves upon God's compassion. Okay. Right. Although I think that note doesn't explain why famine isn't also something that yeah. comes directly from God. Right. Given, given that in the second paragraph of the Shema, the Hayyim Shamoah, it says that famine is something that is caused by God because of our sins. Okay. Okay. Um, other question, comment? Question, comment? Okay. So just to step back, I should have restarted with this because um, we're starting Tachanun. Tachanun is this um, penitential uh, section of the Sidur. It's really part four footnote, right? We talked about the four parts of the morning service. This is like four, I can't even call it part five. It's the part that comes the, because the, the statutory halacha doesn't even really consider it a, a separate section. The part that comes after part four, where you pause for your own individual prayers, right? Penitential prayers. Um, 
a section of the Siddur that uh, a lot of modern congregants are not interested in or don't get it, whereas Michael Harris is very happy that we have a little bit of Yom Kippur every day. Um, and just to step back and talk about the structure of Tachnon, so there's a penitential section. In it is the Tachnon that we're starting to study now, which I'm going to call the core Tachnon, the every weekday. There are other things that are sometimes loaded into that Tachanun. So on Monday and Thursday, we have the seven paragraph extra preamble, which we'll talk about eventually. Um, in the Sephardic liturgy, there's also the Ashamnu every day. Um, Avinu Malkenu, once you understand the structure, Avinu Malkenu is actually then meant to be part of Tachanun, right? Makes sense if you think of it that way, right? So Avinu Malkenu is an extra penitential prayer that is said on fast days and certain other times, right? Um, and just to add one more thing, so I assume everyone's heard of Slichot, the penitential prayers which are added um, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and the week before Rosh Hashanah, although Sephardim do them for a whole month before Rosh Hashanah. We in the conservative movement tend to only do Saturday night, meaning Sunday morning before Rosh Hashanah, and then we don't do the subsequent days. But the Saturday night slash Sunday morning service is actually the first Lichot service you're supposed to do it a version of it every day leading up to Rosh Hashanah and then every day between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And if you look at Sidurim historically, there are three different places where Slichot gets put halachically, can get put. One, which is the one most common, which is the one we're familiar with, is you wake up early and before the regular morning service, you say Slichot. Although our although our waking up early on Sunday morning has come to be instead staying up late on Saturday night before Rosh Hashanah. That's when Slichot are, right? Slichot usually are not at 5 a.m. Sunday morning. They're usually at 11 p.m. or something like that, midnight on Saturday night. Somehow in the last couple hundred years, it got moved there. Um, so the common place where Slichot or said, the Slichot services said has come to be um, before morning davening. A second place halachically where it was sometimes inserted, inserted instead of there was actually in the middle of the Amidah um, at the Slachlanu Avinu Kichatanu. Right, Bracha. So there are Sidur traditions where that whole long Slichot thing with the PU team, right, is inserted in the middle of the Chazan's repetition of the Amidah, which then made the Chazan's repetition of the Amidah hugely expanded during the Slichot season of the High Holidays. That ended up being frowned upon because it was seen to be to be an interruption of the Amidah. And a third location where the Slichot service sometimes got moved to was Tachanun which totally makes sense, okay? Um, 
So Tachanun is the penitential section of which the barest skeleton is Vayomer David El God and what follows, what we're going to be doing, regular weekday Tachanun, sometimes expanded with Monday, Thursday Tachanun, sometimes expanded with Avinu Malkenu on special fast days, um, expanded with other prayers in the Sephardi tradition, including Ashamnu every single day. Um, and historically, uh, there were Sidur traditions, communities where the whole Slichot service of the Rosh Hashanah um, Yom Kippur season was also inserted into Tachnun. In the end, that wasn't the final consensus of where Slichot goes. The final consensus pretty much worldwide, as far as I know today, for Ashkenazim or Sephardim is you say Slichot before the morning service, you wake up early. But that wasn't always the case. There were points in Sidur history where the Slichot was actually inserted into Tachnun, which when you think about it, is actually pretty logical, right? Because it's kind of an expanded version of Tachanun. And for those of you who've davened Slichot in a fairly traditional shul, even a traditional conservative shul, remember that Slichot, Saturday Night Slichot, has in it Shomer Yisrael, and Saturday Night Slichot also has in it the falling on your arm Tachnun, okay? Which means it's sort of logical for Slichot to go in this place rather than you wake up early, you say the whole Slichot service, including Shomer Yisrael and the falling on your arm Tachnun. And then later, after the Amida, when you're doing your regular morning davening and you do Tachnun, you say Shomer Yisrael again and do the falling on your arm Tachnun again, which it seems to me makes no sense whatsoever if you already did it in the Slichot service. So I actually think Slichot belongs more logically in Tachnun than as a separate little pre-service, the way we do it worldwide. But, you know, I lost that vote. Okay. Um, I also think this is just my little, you know, soapbox. If we added, we in our daily minion, added a stripped down version of Slichot, um, it could take up 10 minutes, uh, stripped down, but requiring the core which is telling the story of God forgiving the people, the sin of the golden calf, and Ashamnu, and maybe one piyut. We could add that in our Tachanun, um, and then we wouldn't have the problem of, well, we don't have Slichot before the service and start early, because then no one would show up for Slichot. We would just say, it's like a Monday, Thursday, in some shuls, we start 10 or 15 minutes earlier and we add Slichot. But that's just me and I'm not in charge. Michael Harris. Yes, you mentioned that in the uh, Sephardic tradition, there is also Avinu Malkenu. And I know no, 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 sorry. No, no, no. Ash- Ashamnu. I said Ashamnu. Uh, maybe I misspoke. I didn't mean to say Avinu Malkenu. I meant to say in the Sephardic tradition, there's Ashamnu every day. We all add Avinu Malkenu on fast day. So forgive me if I misspoke. No, no, not fast days. I'm talking about in the in the normal Tachanun. Okay. Yes, in the normal Tachanun, Sephardim add Ashamnu. But not Avinu Malkenu. Okay. Not Avinu Malkenu. All right. Okay. Sorry if I misspoke. Yep, Ashamnu every day. It's right here. It's right. By the way, and Sephardim means also, Sephardim in this case doesn't mean 
what we call Mizrahim, Jews of, of, you know, North African and Southwest Asian origin. Sephardim it includes them, but it also includes Hasidim because Hasidim followers of the Ari have a version of the Sidur, which actually incorporates Sephardi elements into the Ashkenazi liturgy. So I have an Israeli Ashkenazi Sidur, which has Ashamnu said every day as part of Tachanun. Um, I have to look carefully at the instructions and see, does it say some people say? Um, it actually doesn't say that. Oh, it's so interesting. Um, and in my Sidur, my Israeli Sidur, it says, and on fast days, this is where we insert slichot. Okay. Okay. So it's essentially then Tachanun, I'm just going to say one sentence of summary. Tachanun is this penitential section. We could really call it Tachanun. We could really call it slichot if you wanted. It would also be a fair term to use, right? Tachanun is this penitential section of the Sidur. After the statutory liturgy ends, statutory meaning required by halacha, after the Amidah, where we add penitential prayers, and it was of a flexible length, and when there was an occasion when extra penitential prayers needed to be added, whether that was Monday, Thursday, or around Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur time, or on fast days, this is where they were put um, um, because this was seen to be kind of the logical part of the service. I'm going to say theologically, aesthetically, psychologically, where you would put things like that. With one exception, the one exception I want to remind you is what's the little taste of Tachanun that we get early in the service? It's that part of Birchot HaShachar where we say, you know, we are nothing, we are no better than animals, right? Birchot HaShachar, morning blessings. Then we sit down for the last paragraph. Then we have these things that we say, which is, I'm going to say, of a Tachanun-like um, aesthetic and ideology. We got, yeah, Ma'anachnu, what are we? We're nothing. We're no better than animals. Hashem, we fling ourselves on your mercy. The only saving grace is that we are part of the people that say the Shema, that part of the um, Birchot HaShachar, right? So that is somehow, I don't quite know how that got to be there. That's an interesting question. That is somehow like a little taste of the Tachanun mentality, which ends up being stuck at the beginning of the Sidur um, rather than as part of the Tachanun service. Maybe they were worried that you'd leave shul early and you wouldn't. You wouldn't get to have Tachanun, so we're going to... <laughs> so now I'm going to go on with the Tachanun text. We're going to move forward, is my plan. But I'm going to pause first for the... Are there any questions or comments? There may be more questions or comments. Of, more comments, of course, when we finish Tachanun, when we get through it. But that's kind of the big, the big picture. So we're on the bottom of page 132 in the sim, the top of page 62 in the slim. Maybe I should have said that at the beginning but I said that last week. So we open with Vayomer David al-Gad. So we open with this line, which evokes this story from the last chapter of the second book of Samuel. And then a second line, Rachum v'chanun chatati lefanecha, Adonai malei rachamim, rachem alai v'kabel tachanunai. 
I think this line is not actually a quote from anywhere. I think it is actually an original composition in the Siddur. Um, I'll double check that. Uh, so it means, merciful one, I have sinned. Hashem, who is filled with rachamim, compassion, have compassion on me and accept my tachanunim, my supplications. So this is a line where basically I just, you could, you could say what it means kind of emotionally in the structure is I just quoted this story about King David. He was a model for I'd rather suffer at the hands of God because God is compassionate. Now I, first person singular, right? The, the, uh, the first line was a third person. I'm just quoting something from a story that happened to someone else. Now I'm turning to say, Hashem, O merciful one, please be merciful to me and accept my tachanunim. So it's actually a great lead-in and intro to whatever one wants to say later, right? It's sort of an axis or a pivot where we turn from a biblical story to the personal. Question, comment? It's a pretty straightforward thought, the line, that sentence. There's nothing tricky about it. Okay. And then we're going to go on to the psalm. And again, I think I said last week, this is our Ashkenazi psalm. Sephardim have a different psalm that they say. Different, again, psalm of a, I will call it a penitential flavor. We've picked Psalm 6. We Ashkenazim. And um, on page, if if you look in our conservative Siddur, they give an alternative, Shir HaMalot, bottom of page 62, or the second paragraph on page 134. And that is not one of the traditional, that, that alternative is not in any traditional Sidurim. That's the one that the editor of the conservative Sidur decided to pick. And later on, after we look at the Psalms, you can decide if you, you know, we, we'll, we'll, we'll ask, why did they pick an alternative? Okay, so let's jump into Psalm 6. Hashem al So remember, sorry, all psalms, we haven't done psalms in a while. All psalms, we have to imagine an individual psalmist, author, poet, prayer, person. It tells some story about their life, their feeling state, what is happening to them, what their experience is. This person clearly is suffering, and he attributes, I say he, but the person, attributes their suffering to God. God is angry at me. That must be why I'm suffering. Maybe that's why the the editor of the conservative Sidur picked an alternative psalm, because that's a theology that doesn't grab a lot of people nowadays. There's some people that theology doesn't grab them. God is angry at me, and that's why I'm being punished with some bad thing that is befalling me. And then at the end, there is the sense of relief. So it's a sort of a classic psalm of, um, these are called sometimes lament psalms or uh, psalms of lament. There are other terms for them that Bible scholars use, but sort of a classic psalm of, oi, 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 bad things are happening to me. Please save me, save me, save me. Then there's always some sense of relief in the psalm. It ends on an up note, not on a down note. If it ended on a down note, people wouldn't want to say the psalm. Okay, so Hashem, don't punish me 
don't punish me in your anger and do not punish me in your anger, said with synonyms. Af and chema. Af means nose because it's nostrils flaring and chema means bile, B-I-L-E. And they're both used as biblical metaphors of anger. And lehochiach means to reap in English. I don't know. They usually translate it as to reprove whatever that means in English. And tias reini means to discipline, but it has discipline in the sense of like physical discipline, right? Like the way we say discipline, like, you know, corporal punishment. So it doesn't mean, um, so do not chastise me or chasten me. It's what the translator wants to use these verbs. Okay. Avi, Avi. Uh, yes. Can we um, understand tochicheni? as to rebuke me. Yes. But rebuke is a good word. But again, but the, the problem with these English translations is rebuke has a sense of I'm speaking to you. That's usually what we mean by rebuke. We will see that the poet seems to be experiencing actual physical suffering as opposed to just God said something not God said something very stern. You're a bad guy and you're in trouble with me. Right? Hashem didn't say that to the person. Something is happening to the person that makes the person feel that that's what God is communicating. So that's my problem with all these things. Chastise, chasten, rebuke is that in English, these things can have a verbal only connotation. And it's clear that in the Psalm, it actually has a physical, concrete connotation. The psalmist is suffering, right? So, choneni Hashem, ki umlal ani, be merciful to me, God, because I am miserable. Rifaeni Hashem, ki nivhalu atzamai, heal me, O God, because my bones are trembling. So, this suggests um, maybe illness, Maybe that's what the person is suffering. But we know that in all of the lament psalms, all, I don't know, most of the lament psalms, the suffering is kind of vague. It could be illness. Sometimes people say, I'm drowning. People say, sometimes say, my my feet are stuck in the muck. Sometimes they say, you know, they say all, all kinds of things. And this may be the actual thing that the psalmist is suffering, or it may be a metaphor. It may be it may be actual physical illness, or it may be just a metaphor for some kind of suffering. So my bones are trembling. Same word. And nafshi means myself, really, here. Um, uh, my, my entire being trembles. Okay, that's a nice translation. This is great. Um, the syntax is I, Hashem, I am suffering. Hashem, you got to heal me. You, oh God, dash, right? Syntactically, the sentence doesn't have a, an end. It should be like, and you, oh God, stop punishing me, or you, oh God, be nice to me, or something like that, right? It's got a, it's got a subject without a verb. It's v'ata Hashem, while you, but you, Hashem, how long? Right? So the sense of it is clear. 
right? That I'm turning to God and I'm saying, how long can this go on that this, you, you punishing me? It's got to stop. All right. But the way it is phrased syntactically is, is, is sort of the way a real person might say it, which is to say, not with polished syntax, right? You know, when people are, are agitated, um, they make less sense, right? You know, if you hear someone who's excited or worked up about something, then their syntax may not be uh, all polished. Um, and so that's what this is. No, I cannot minimize Zoom when recording this meeting. Okay, never mind. Um, there's a long thing in the chat from Joanna. Thank you. But, um, so, um, um, which I found distracting. Uh, so that's why I moved it away. So um, when people are excited or worked up, they make less sense, right? And then, and then, all right, you know, you hear someone be like that. So that's what this is. I am suffering so much. Would you please be merciful? God, you, how long? Okay. Which means how long can this go on? Okay. Shuva Hashem, Chalitzan Afshi. Hashem, return or go back, right? Meaning stop doing this. Release me. Hoshieni Laman Chastecha. Save me. Why? Save me because I deserve it, because I prayed a lot, because I have mitzvot. No, save me only because of your own loving kindness. Meaning, again, we are appealing. It's not a ledger. Hey, you owe it to me, God. We're appealing to God's essential, merciful nature, getting back to King David, right? The, the, the idea in the King David story. God is essentially full of rachamim. Is this a is this a um, a bargaining, a manipulation? Because we see this other places in the Psalms. Lo right? In death, there is no mention of you. In the underworld, who will praise you? Meaning, if I die, God then I'm not going to be around to praise you, to, to thank you or praise you publicly. It, sometimes explicitly in these Psalms or implicitly is when I'm saved, there's going to be Thanksgiving. When there's Thanksgiving, I'm going to go to the temple. I'm going to offer Thanksgiving sacrifice. It's going to be public. And I'm going to tell the story to everyone about how God saved me. Okay. Um, so um, I think, in the middle of in the middle right here is where we ought to stop just because time-wise, I think we're going to need to stop. And I think next week we will relearn, just go over the first half of the Psalm, Psalm 6, and finish the Psalm. I think that will be the agenda for next week. So we're kind of in the middle, in, in mid-thought here. So if you have if you have a specific question about something in the Psalm that we've read so far, ask that now. If it's a comment about the Psalm as a whole, let's hold on to that for next week when we see the Psalm as a whole. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.